Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So I'm happy to get to speak with you tonight about the Dharma. And specifically, I want to talk to you about uh, some teachings of the Buddha that surround uh, something called the inversions of view of mind and perception. Uh, Vipalasa is the Pali name for this. So, since you've been here on retreat some days, uh, insight meditation retreat, I'm sure you've gained some insight. One of the common ones that people tend to notice after some days like this is that uh, they're crazier than they thought that they were. <laughs> so those of you who are laughing know what I'm talking about. Um, those of you who are not, let me give some suggestions of <laughs> things you could look at, look for, that might be familiar in the mind stream has arisen during this time. So, for example, uh, the mind uh, planning obsessively about things that you don't need to plan about. <laughs> like where you will put your shoes, uh, which shoes you will wear, uh, which walking path you might go to after this, uh, what you will do after lunch, um, when you will take your shower. Things that, usually things that you were able to spontaneously uh, manage without large-scale plans uh, in your regular life. Uh, also, worrying about things that you didn't feel like usually you might have to worry about. Uh, so noticing the mind, um, basically creating problems. You know, the mind, you might have noticed, can be a problem machine. So where there's actually no problem, the mind creates a problem and then perseverates upon it. And this could be something from uh, imagining a sickness that you might have um, based on not too much evidence um, it could be imagining a problem that you might have in the future uh, when you go home. Uh, it might be imagining uh, different ways that um, bad things could happen to you uh, while you're here or elsewhere. You know, any number of things the mind like will create a problem. You're just sitting here breathing quietly, minding your own business, and then, you know. It could be that you notice that... Uh, you have fallen in love with someone here. Someone who you do not know and you have never spoken to. <laughs> uh, someone you know absolutely nothing about, uh, except that you like the way that they walk or uh, the way that they eat or um, you know, any number of things. And so then the mind creates uh, the story about this. And this is, happens so frequently, we even have the term, the Vipassana romance for this genre of delusion. And sometimes the mind will go through the entire cycle of you talk afterwards and you'll get along really well and you'll then start to mindfully date each other and then you'll get a mindful apartment together and <laughs> then you'll have a nice shrine there and you might plan out the shrine and then um, so on. And some people even go so far as then to go through the mindful breakup also. Right? Yeah. <laughs> the other side of this might be the Vipassana vendetta. So the other side, the mind will choose someone, some hapless poor individual, <laughs> who becomes the enemy. And maybe they happen to sit next to you sometime, like at lunch, a little too close, and um, then you decide this person has it in for you, and they're, uh, you know, everything about them is irritating, including the way they walk, the way they move, uh, and uh, great feelings of antipathy towards this poor human being who probably is just trying to do their practice and uh, walk and sit just as you are. Right? And many other variations of this, but there's just a small smattering of ways in which you can see uh, these, these patterns of mind that show up that have a strong energy and that it's really easy for us to believe, you know, to get sucked into these stories and then inhabit these imaginary worlds. 
So this is what we call delusion. In the, you might have heard this threefold thing about greed, hatred, and delusion. And delusion really underlies both uh, greed and hatred as uh, habits of mind. Uh, but it's, re- it's really rife. It's really uh, around a lot in our experience. And in fact, if you're seeing it more and more, uh, don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, like you're getting more delusional. It probably is just that you're actually becoming more aware. You know? You're becoming more aware, so we're seeing these patterns of mind that otherwise we gloss over or believe or um, inhabit uh, without any kind of awareness. So these uh, distortions of mind, this vipalasa is translated in different ways as distortions or perversions or inversions, uh, errors, uh, hallucinations. And the Buddha points out four particular ones that it's helpful for us to notice uh, and which understanding them can lead towards freedom. So the four are basically uh, our misunderstanding about the three characteristics. So our tendency to take that which is impermanent to be permanent. Our tendency to take that which is unsatisfactory as if it is satisfactory. So this is about dukkha our tendency to take there to be a solid, permanent, controlling entity of self where there is none, to fabricate and believe in this. And then the fourth one uh, is about our tendency to misperceive that which is unattractive and see it as beautiful, or to misperceive that which is unwholesome as wholesome. So I'll explain a little bit about uh, each of these. Then this teaching about this, the Buddha also points out that we uh, make these mistakes, these uh, errors, uh, in three areas of, uh, that, are, that are good to pay attention to. So in the area of perception, in the area of thought, and in the area of view. So perception, sanya, some of you might recognize as one of the uh, five aggregates, and uh, the area of thought, citta, in the area of uh, view, ditti. So we'll talk first about perception. So what is perception? So perception is actually a, a, a factor of mind that's there in all moments, so whether you're practicing or not. And it's the characteristic of mind that identifies uh, for you uh, something. So it, cho- it picks out the characteristics of something uh, and tells you what it is. So it's a very helpful functional uh, way the mind works, this quality of perception. The only thing is that sometimes it does this inaccurately, and that's what this is pointing to. So we actually misperceive something. So when we accurately perceive something, it's something as basic as like knowing from sight this is a bell, uh, knowing that is a door, uh, recognizing your shoes as opposed to someone else's shoes, uh, even the, the characteristics of remembering someone's name. So you may or may not know a lot of people's names here, but maybe when you pass, uh, you know, you're doing your walking and one of the teachers walks by, you might in your mind see that labeling of them, like, oh, Pascal or uh, Joseph or Kamala. And it's interesting to notice this identification happens uh, automatically. So in this, you can see it's, it's actually a selfless characteristic of the mind. You know, it just arises on its own. Sometimes it's easier to notice it's a selfless characteristic of the mind when it doesn't arise. <laughs> so meaning if you see someone outside of here, maybe, and you try to remember their name and you can't remember their name. And uh, for me, sometimes that experience is like, um, you know, trying to light a match and it's not lighting. You know, it's like trying to get their name and it's not, it's not coming, like there's... The perception is not uh, showing up in that way. But the interesting one and the helpful one to uh, pay attention to is when the mind actually misperceives something. And the simplest one would be uh, like if you're walking along and then you see something that is like a stick and you perceive it to be a snake. 
And then you react to that, like, ah, snake. And then you see it's not moving and it's a stick. And you're like, okay, it's a stick. And you keep walking. So in that moment, there was a misperception of the snake or of the branch, uh, the branch to be the snake. Now say this happens in every uh, field of sense experience. So this uh, stick to snake one is um, actually a common kind of spiritual trope. Where it's, it's usually the rope and the snake. You see a rope and you think it's a snake. And, you know. So I'll share a few others in uh, different sense doors so you get the pattern here. So um, I grew up in the city and uh, then at one point um, when I was in college, I took a, a bicycle trip across country and it was a great um, experience traveling. And at one point we were driving, riding through Idaho and... Uh, I remember thinking, like, wow, it smells like air freshener. You know? <laughs> and uh, then, you know, I realized, like, oh, it's, this is actually evergreen, you know. <laughs> actually, the air freshener tr- smells like evergreen, not the evergreen smell like the air freshener, but, you know. <laughs> so it was the actual trees were there. It wasn't that they had hung in the national park the air fresheners, you know. Uh, so misperception in that way. Or another friend of mine, also from the city, told me she went to a, a retreat center um, somewhere. And then um, in the beginning, it was uh, disconcerting to her. And she felt like she couldn't sleep because car alarms were going off all the time. Um, until she realized that it was frogs. Uh, <laughs> so her, you know, her perception from urban environment was that this chirping sound like this uh, is a car alarm. So she wasn't used to the natural world like that. Or uh, in the field of taste. So you know, a couple of days ago, um, we had something like Cobb salad here, right? And uh, as we were eating, it was like, wait a minute, is this bacon? You know, there's a sense this is bacon, but you know, it's a vegetarian retreat center. Like, they couldn't be serving bacon. And uh, still haven't figured out what it was. I think it was like a mushroom thing or something. But you know, so misperception, and then depending on your, um, you know, own uh, take on that, it could have continued on into the field of thought of like, how dare they serve bacon on retreat? Like, I thought, how, you know, I thought this was against the precepts. All right. And then in the area of touch, the experience of the body. So probably it's happened to you that you're sitting here and then um, there's some experience in the body that is like a tingling or a twitching. And in your mind you think like, oh no, it's an insect on me. It's a bug, you know. And then as it moves, uh, it might proliferate into the field of thought also. Like, oh no, the insect is moving up my face. <laughs> like, oh no, it's going to move into my ear. You know, it's going to have uh, lay eggs and all this stuff, <laughs> you know. Uh, and then actually it's nothing. It's just an itch or the wind or the, even your own shirt or your own body, your own hair on your neck. But you've per- misperceived that, right, to be... Uh, an insect and then proliferated in the mind around that. So it's happening actually pretty often that this is the case and it's helpful to tune into this, uh, you know, both with a sense of humor uh, as you're getting, but just to see how often your mind is wrong. To undercut our complete belief in everything that the mind throws up as accurate. So uh, anytime that you see something out of the corner of your eye and you think, for example, it's an animal and you look and it's not an animal, it's a bush, you'll notice that, notice that moment in which there has been a perception that's actually not true. So when we have these uh, mistaken perceptions, these errors of perception, then they catalyze uh, thoughts that are also erroneous. So we contemplate things, we uh, worry about things, uh, we activate this field of thought in a way uh, that is also uh, delusion. And then from that, we build up a view. We build up a view of the world, some particular uh, underlying belief system that we hold onto. Now this whole thing also uh, reinforces itself because once you have some kind of view, then that informs what you perceive. So kind of like me and my friend, having grown up in the city, you know, 
that informed uh, how we perceived the world and how we uh, identified different sounds and smells. So our, our world view then influences our perception of each other, of experience, uh, of life. So some of these things are, uh, you know, worldly things, and the examples I gave there can be a bit humorous, but the, the particular ones that are freeing uh, are these four that the Buddha pointed out. So the way in which we misperceive something that is impermanent as permanent, and particularly the ways in which that relates to what we will call our self. So the ways in which we construct some idea of ourself and believe in that when it's not here. And the ways in which we invest in things in the world that can never be satisfying to us uh, as if they can. So how do we investigate this? So in the area of uh, perception, it's by tuning into this arising of perception. And it can be like a pretty subtle thing to tune into, but it's, it's something that is possible for us to notice. Uh, sometimes it can come up in a verbal form. Sometimes it can just be an image that we have. Uh, but start to notice that, and particularly when you're wrong about things. Then there's the thoughts that we have around things. So notice when there's some proliferation of thought. And sometimes you could actually reflect a little bit, like, What is the perception that has kicked this off? What is the perception that has catalyzed this? What was the sense door experience that then has helped to create this world of thought? And sometimes we can actually question also, I wonder what is the view that might be underlying uh, the way in which these reactions are happening? Is there some view that is informing the way that I'm interpreting the world. So we might have gotten a sense of this uh, impermanence through our own experience. You know, that which we experience as the world is actually this rapidly changing succession of experiences. And on a larger scale also, as living beings on this planet, as soon as we're born, we're on our way to aging and inevitably will end in death. Everything that starts has an end. And that is the way of the world. And this is true of all living things. This is true of all fabrications, including this building It's true of all the trees here. It's true of your clothes. It's true of everything. And yet, because we don't pay attention, we don't see clearly, then we perceive these things to be permanent. We perceive there to be some way in which we can have some lasting relationship with objects, with people, uh, with any entities. And we look to those to bring us some kind of satisfaction and security. But of course, in a world in which everything's always changing, it's going to be difficult for us to find lasting security and lasting happiness, lasting satisfaction in impermanent objects and people. So it's kind of like, you know, buying real estate in sandcastles or something like that, you know. Uh, trying to capture smoke rings or clouds. And it's helpful as we might notice ourselves doing this to hold it with a lot of uh, compassion. Because all of these inversions are basically the unawakened mind's best guess at how to deal with the world that seems to be presenting itself to us. So it's just a lack of wisdom. It's a lack of wisdom of of not seeing this change in the changing, this unsatisfactoriness in 
things that are not permanent. So what we do in Vipassana is we try to pay attention clearly to see this in some more uh, ongoing way. And it reminds me sometimes of this problem of uh, continuity in films. So I took some filmmaking course at some point and um, in making a film, first of all, it's hard work. That's what I found out. (laughs) Um, And also you have to do many different takes on things. So you film something from this angle and then you film it from this angle, and then maybe people mess up their lines, so you do it again, this angle, this angle, over and over. And then you take all that stuff, uh, and you edit it, and you basically cut and paste different pieces of film together, digital film really, uh, to create some illusion of continuity. So if there's a conversation between two people, it'll be filmed from this side, kind of over the shoulder, and then from that person over the shoulder, and then you kind of stick them together. So as a director, you take the best uh, ones, like when the actors have done it the best and the light is the best and all this stuff. But sometimes they're from different uh, takes and there are these errors in continuity. So for example, in one of them, uh, someone is um, drinking a glass of soda and then it goes to the next person and then it comes back here and suddenly the soda is more full than it was before. <laughs> you know? And there, there are actually whole uh, sites where people have critiqued uh, films for these errors in continuity that are there that actually reveal the way in which this world has been constructed. Um, on more uh, high-budget films than the one I made, there are actually people whose entire job is to pay attention to this continuity. You know, so they pay attention to how the hair was of the actors and what the props were behind and everything like that yeah, to try to create this sense of continuity. So this is actually true of our lives too, you know? Like, we have not paid attention to what is errors in continuity. (laughs) There are errors in continuity in what we are perceiving to be ourselves. In fact, it's a complete fabrication. It's not actually there. So Vipassana is helping us to um, notice this and some of the techniques, for example, the noting technique that we've described of framing what it is that we are aware of. Lifting, moving, placing. Breathing in, breathing out. Thinking, planning, itching, cold, so on. So this is to help us train our perception in seeing the change. You know, in noticing this discontinuity the errors in continuity. So look at this, the second one, this one about um, we take pleasure in what is suffering. We misperceive something that is uh, actually unsatisfactory, to be satisfactory. So there are huge amounts of different examples of this, and I'll I'll give you a couple, but really I'm presenting this to you for you to be able to check this out in your own experience and see um, where this might be true. So I mentioned about the way that we relate to things as kind of the the unawakened mind's best guess at what to do with this changing world. And one of those aspects is like, if we see something pleasant, grasp after it. You know, go for it. Like, try to make it stay. Glom onto it. And this goes for whatever the field is, whether it's in the field of sight or uh, experience of the body, sound, you know. So then if we don't get this thing, we think it's a problem and that the problem is the absence of this object. So this could be like, you know, you want a particular kind of food or you wanted to go walk in a certain area and someone else is there. Um, You wanted the temperature to be warmer than it is, anything like that. And this is reinforced by our culture also that the act of desiring, the act of craving, the act of wanting something is actually a good thing. So we believe that that is a desirable state to attain, wanting. And in fact, that this is the path to happiness. The path to happiness is through wanting things. So Joseph described the 
the experience of looking in a catalog and noticing the wanting mind, just looking for an object right, to glom onto. And you can see with this, this pattern, this habitual energy, uh, that really has a kind of insert photo here quality to it. Those of you who have a tendency to uh, fall in love a lot or get crushes, you could notice this too, that that pattern is just waiting for someone who has like remotely approximating the characteristics of someone uh, who could fill this pattern to show up. Uh, and then it starts and it can be so powerful and compelling. You know? And it doesn't even really have to do with that person. It's just this energetic pattern that's taking over and playing itself out. So then we got to see how perception uh, or misperception continues to try to reinforce this. So in this case, this example of when we have a pattern of falling in love or having a crush on someone, uh, we try to perceive, like pick out all the good things about this person, you know, to reinforce our pattern. And we usually push away uh, all of the unpleasant things. There's one um, film that uh, shows this in a funny way. It's called 500 Days of Summer. So in this, this young man falls in love with someone in his office. And in the beginning, he has such a crush on her. So he's like, the way she moves, her knees, that little line by her eyes, the way she sneezes, everything. And they show this with this music behind it, and he's totally enamored of her. So then in this film, they, they get together for a little while, but then basically she dumps him, I think is the story. And then he's devastated, and then he hates her. <laughs> and they do a good job. They show this exact same visual film in which he's like, I hate everything about her, the way her knee bends, those lines around her eyes, <laughs> the way she laughs, the way she sneezes, you know. <laughs> and you know, it's, it's just flipped like that. And like, what is that? <laughs> It's delusion. (laughs) So see how the mind does this. You know, observe these patterns playing out. So relatedly, this thing about, um, you know, perceiving clearly the the unattractive. And this one is like a somewhat more uh, controversial one for our time, you know. Usually the the way that it's illustrated is about um, what is our relationship to the human body? to our own body and to others' bodies. And particularly if you are someone who tends to have this kind of lust or crush or something like that of idealizing the body. So the Buddhist teaching is very much like, let's just see it exactly as it is. So for me, it's not that the human body is not, does not have beautiful aspects, but there also are other aspects to be perceived. And this is true of all of living things. So uh, recently I met a new puppy. Uh, It was a very cute puppy. And it was the breed was um, one I had not seen before. I think it was called a golden doodle. So it's a mix of a a poodle and a golden retriever. (laughs) So super cute dog. It looked like like a giant fluffy stuffed, live stuffed animal, you know. Uh, And it was a puppy, so he was very cute and um, stuff. And then um, petting the dog. And then if you hang around dogs long enough, though, they poop, right? (laughs) So it's like, oh yeah, and there's also that. <laughs> you know, there's also that. <laughs> it's like there's there's this and there's also that, and keep that in mind, you know. And we don't always do that, you know, like it's like, oh that cute puppy in the window, I want to bring him home and you know. And then it's like, yeah, and someone has to feed him, and someone has to pick up his poop several times a day. And um as one of my friends said, you know, when you when you get the puppy, they never show you a picture of what the dog will be like when it's old. You know, and because of the length of time of, um, you know, usual doggy lives and human lives, you know, many of us have gone through this, the poignancy of seeing your cute puppy um, get old, you know, during your, your life, right? Um, and then be in pain, and then get sick, and then die, right? Uh, and it's, it's really difficult, and it's often like a surprise, you know? So that's the thing, is like, when we see clearly it shouldn't be a surprise, you know. It doesn't mean you can't have a dog or can't love a dog, but can we go in and see clearly like what the whole situation is? Okay. 
Similarly with people, you know, so if you're going on a date or something like that or go to a job interview, everyone's like all nicely quaffed and, you know, put their best foot forward. And, and that's good. It's good to do that. But oftentimes in relationships, there's a certain stage in which uh, the illusion starts to fall away, you know. <laughs> Maybe it's the first time after you spend the night with them and you hear them flush the toilet, you know. <laughs> it's like, oh, there's also that, right? <laughs> you know? Or the first time they get sick or, you know, something like that, right? And it, again, it's like not uh, necessarily um, terrible, but it can be disillusioning if you were not ready to see that side as well, you know? I mean, the love can deepen into a way in which like, oh, you're sick, I want to take care of you, right? But it does mean that that initial, like, you're only beautiful and uh, completely, uh, like, uh, infallible and flawless has to let be let go of. You know, you have to be able to open to this wider perception. So there's a, a reflection that's done about the body that includes attending to the different uh, different aspects of the physical body. It's a meditation uh, on, uh, traditionally it's like 32 parts of the body. But the first five are ones that we can uh, reflect on more easily. And it's about attending to uh, head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin. And these are aspects of the body that uh, get cut off and clipped and uh, slough off and uh, things like that. And it's like questioning also like, oh, what's actually me in this? You know, what is actually essentially me or mine? So monks and nuns, when they get their head shaved the first time, there's part of the ceremony that includes holding a lock of hair and contemplating that, you know, the impermanence of that, uh, and letting go of this aspect of ourselves that we usually identify with very much. You know. like think about how much time you spent on haircuts or thinking about your haircut, planning your haircut, you know, <laughs> rearranging your haircut. <laughs> reformatting it, talking to other people about your haircut, taking pictures of your haircut, looking at haircuts that you might have, and so on. Maybe even on this retreat you spent time doing this, right? Um, Whereas actually it's just organic matter. You know, it's just organic matter. And if you're in a barbershop, especially if you get a lot of hair cut off, and then suddenly you look around at the floor, it's like, what is that? You know, what is this stuff now? This, This stuff on the ground. Like, is that me? Was that me? So just seeing the the nature of it, you know, this is an organic animal entity and it's really no more me when it's here than it's on the floor. It's not in my control. It's, uh, yeah, it just is what it is, basically. Similarly with clipping the nails, you know, notice when you clip them off, they're like these hard, bony things. And uh, then there's a small, like, dish of them or bunch of them they're sharp edges and like what is that is that me essentially like what is that so just seeing clearly the nature of this the nature of the body the nature of of the human experience um, even things that we gloss over a lot so like the fact that we have to shower often you know and unless you've been camping for a while if you've had access to showers in an ongoing way, uh, you can kind of forget that like the body gets smelly like pretty fast, you know? Like it gets dirty pretty fast. And this is some element of samsara, you know, that we have to keep cleaning it and it keeps getting dirty, you know? And even when you try and have it as kempt as possible, it's actually like constantly oozing out of all of these different uh, orifices, you know, and the skin. Uh, and this is actually why you have to do laundry. <laughs> you know? Like, the reason you have to do laundry is because the body is constantly oozing. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, it's something we take for granted, but, like, just reflect on this stuff, you know? Uh, it, defi- it doesn't mean you have to hate the body, for sure, but it's just, like, see the true nature of this. You know, in the same way, like, see the true nature of the puppy dog or whatever. Like, yeah, this is, this is an aspect of nature. We're just, like, animals in this way. You know, like the turkeys or the deer or, uh, or the puppies. Uh, 
So don't glorify it. Don't believe the hype of, you know, uh, ideas that we get. Now the benefit of this too is that you can uh, sometimes free yourself from uh, pressure to conform in other ways. So pressure to conform to what you think you're supposed to look like or what shape this animal is supposed to be or, uh, you know, what, where the uh, hair is supposed to be arranged or where the pool of flesh is supposed to be arranged. or you know, There can be a lot of pressure from a sense of perception around this. Uh, perception of beauty that's actually highly conditioned from society and has changed over the ages. Right? So seeing through this can bring a lot of freedom. Also, perceiving the body as it is can change our relationship with taking care of it. So, for example, the act of eating, which we do several times a day. So the um, monks and nuns in the lineage of Ajahn Chah do a reflection before they take their meal. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with it. And it's uh, wisely reflecting, I take this food not for pleasure, not for fattening, not for beautification, but for the maintenance and nourishment of this body, for keeping it healthy, for the support of the holy life. Reflecting thus, may I allay hunger without overeating so I may continue to live blamelessly and at ease. So wow, like what if our relationship to the body changed such that uh, a lot of the neurotic stuff around eating was taken away. And we were able to uh, use that, come into some wise relationship to food. Yeah. Speaking of which, you know, that with pleasant experience, there is a tendency to glom onto it, as I mentioned. Uh, and here's where also there's uh, a misperception sometimes about the possibility of pleasure, like what that can give us the possibility of satisfaction that a good bite of food can give us. So in um, practice that they did in this monastery uh, with Ajahn Chah, apparently, um, Ajahn Sumedho described this once, who was a a Western monk who was uh, the previous head of the order in uh, England. So he said when he was a young monk, they would go on alms round with their bowl, and they only got one meal a day. You know, before uh, noon, they would eat their one meal. So they were really psyched for this uh, meal, you know. And so people would put food in and, you know, he'd say, he'd, observing his mind, walking mindfully, but getting excited about, like, what was in there. There's, like, some curry and rice and vegetables and maybe some ice cream sometimes, sweets and this and that, right? And he said sometimes when they came back, it was almost like Ajahn Chah could perceive that greed in the mind. And he would make them all dump their entire bowl into this big vat and then he would have someone stir it around <laughs> and then redole it out to each of them <laughs> in a giant mess of slop. You know? <laughs> and he said, you know, it was so like, ah, my, you know, my one meal of the day. Um, he said, you know, it really uh, curbed greed, <laughs> you know, and it didn't make you overeat, you know. Like you would eat what you needed to alleviate hunger. Like it really, you know, for, not for the fattening, not for pleasure. Like you only ate what you needed to eat, right? <laughs> this way. <laughs> and then let it go. So, so we won't do that to you here. <laughs> but if you wish to try it on your own, <laughs> you're welcome to check it out. So then to what can be the most freeing one, uh, really, which is about this, this perception of self where there is none. So we have a view of that. You know, we believe that uh, this is me. And uh, of course this is me. There is a solid me here. And like, I'm in control of my life. This is my body. This is my thoughts. You know, all this stuff. This is the most unusual of the uh, teachings uh, of these three characteristics, I think. And in some ways the most revolutionary is to question this. To allow ourselves to see into this. You know, if this is true, right? And these characteristics are not actually like truths, like absolute truths, but they're kind of ways of inquiry that will help us to free ourselves in our relationship to life. 
So for example, uh, this sense of self, it arises whenever there is some uh, sense of wanting or not wanting. Somewhere in there is a sense of self. So check it out and see if this is true. Somewhere in there is a sense of me and the thing I don't have, or me and the thing I want to get away from. You know, there has to be a duality in that. So it's based on this erroneous view. It's in there, in the perception, and then it plays out in our thoughts about it. I want this to happen, I don't want this to happen. Notice, in fact, of your thoughts, how many of them are actually of yourself in some way. You know, the content of your thoughts, how many of them are about, this is who I am, this is who I want to be, this is who I used to be, this is what people think of me, this is what I want them to think of me, this is what I think of myself, (laughs) this is what I was in the past, this is what I'll be in the future, this is my stuff, so on and so forth. This is my family, these are my dreams. The vast majority of all of the field of thinking that happens is actually surrounding this idea of self, this idea of me. So even in the, the experience of suffering that comes, for example, from a sound happening that you would want to have happen. So say someone next to you starts coughing. And it's actually just a sound. It could be perceived as a sound. It could be perceived as a pleasant sound or an unpleasant sound. It comes, it goes. Then there's some perception of it as a sound, which is actually different than a sound if you heard a turkey or the bell or a door. And, and there's a story that arises with that. So perception, person coughing, a view, person should not be coughing in the hall. Right? And then the story begins, the thoughts, like, um, why can't they be quiet? They're disturbing my meditation. Um, they should go out, they should sit somewhere else, and so on. And we're kind of off and running. So we perceive ourselves to be here, and then we also perceive another individual. And it's very interesting to notice, like, we don't usually get as mad at the birds uh, for sound or the wind, right? Uh, Or things that are inanimate. So it's this misperception of self in our own experience and what we misperceive in others that causes additional suffering. So one of my favorite um, examples of this is from the Zen uh, monk Chuang Tzu, who tells a story about an empty boat on a lake. So someone is rowing along in a boat, and an empty boat comes up and knocks into their boat. And they just push it away, and they continue on their way. And a little bit later, there's someone who comes up in a boat that's being rowed and bumps into them. So then the person yells at them, like, hey, watch where you're going. Don't bump into me. You're so unmindful, etc. Right? So what's the difference between those two? So in the first example, it was the conditions of the wind and the water. Uh, and the conditionality just made the boat bump into this one. But actually the same thing happened. A boat bumped in. There was no perception of some agency, some self that was directing that experience. As we deepen our insight into uh, the three characteristics, we can see more and more that uh, what we are perceiving to be someone else doing something to us is actually just a pattern of conditioning and habit that we're interacting with. It doesn't mean that you don't need to sometimes stop them or move or do something else, but it takes out that element of having to hate them. It takes out that element of aversion that's there that comes from our misperception of self and other. So as we get that more and more, there can be more and more freedom and relaxation and seeing clearly. So the Buddha talks about these uh, vipalasas, these distortions, these perversions, these inversions, as uh, ways in which our mind is actually thrown, like a cart thrown upside down, or that it's actually broken. There there are ways in which we're not seeing clearly. There are ways in which we are insane. 
But also it's possible through the cultivation of clear seeing, through development of wise view, through clear thinking, and through more careful perception to align ourselves more and to see through these. Now, some interesting aspects of this one is that even if you have clarified right view, the momentum of energy of some of these patterns and energies of thought patterns and even the habit of misperception might continue. So get used to it. (laughs) So if you see some misperception arise or some pattern of thinking, uh, the helpful thing is not feeling like you have to kill it or to get mad at it, but actually just practice seeing through it. You know, practice seeing this as some habitual pattern of, of energy, a habitual manner of perception that just happens to be incorrect. So we just need to see through them and continue to clarify our view and then trust that in the process uh, it's possible that the purification of the heart and mind will clear this up naturally in time. So what would it be like if you actually saw clearly in this way? What was it like for the Buddha? So there's one uh, sutta, the Kalakarama Sutta, in which the Buddha describes some, uh, kind of in the way that he was talking to Bai, I was giving him instructions, but he's actually describing uh, what he himself perceives. So he says uh, about himself that uh, Tathagata, this is the name he's calling himself, does not conceive of a visible thing as apart from sight. He does not conceive of an unseen. He does not conceive of a thing worth seeing. He does not conceive about a seer. And similarly, he goes through the different other sense doors. He does not conceive of an audible thing as apart from hearing. He does not conceive of an unheard. He does not conceive of a thing worth hearing. He does not conceive of a hearer. He does not conceive of a thing to be sensed apart from sensation. He does not conceive of an unsensed. He does not conceive of a thing worth sensing. He does not conceive about one who senses. He does not conceive of a cognizable thing as apart from cognition does not conceive of an uncognized. He does not conceive of a thing worth cognizing. And he does not conceive about one who cognizes. Thus the Tathagata being such in regard to all phenomena seen, heard, sensed, and cognized. So interesting thing in paying attention that he's saying what he does not conceive. So basically it's like the process is one of uncomplicating. like seeing through and uncomplicating. And he's basically describing just the ways in which uh, our minds are deluded, which he no longer sees. So like in many aspects of the teachings, like uh, there's something encouraging to me about you don't need to concoct something else. You know, it's just letting go. Like it continues to be a letting go, a seeing through, a clarification and an alignment. So the possibility of freedom is there all the time. And we're just practicing. We're practicing seeing clearly, practicing knowing the truth, uh, aligning our hearts and minds. And being very patient, very, very patient with ourselves in this process. Trying to have fun with it. You know, like, uh, if you can have a sense of humor about the craziness of the mind (laughs) and the way it plays out, can be tremendously helpful. So get interested in it. You know, check out these things that I've said for yourself. See how you might see them in your experience or not. Yeah. And continue on as best you can. So thank you for your attention. So let's sit for a moment together.
So as with all of the offerings we make here, you're invited to take what's useful and let go of the rest. There's something that seems interesting to apply to your practice, to investigate, then can do so. If there are things that seem overwhelming or confusing, you can practice. Just don't know and let it go. So as you hear the sound of the bell, allow that to bring yourself back into your practice, experience of hearing. Letting go of the words, connecting to the sense doors. Resting in the body, resting with the breath. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.